0: This is Winter Is Here, a podcast where we discuss how we arrived at the global battle between tyranny and democracy, and more importantly, how we can win. I'm your host, Uriel Epstein, Executive Director of the Renew Democracy Initiative, and I'm joined today by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, Professor of History and Italian Studies at New York University. She is an MSNBC opinion columnist and commentator on CNN, MSNBC, and other media outlets about authoritarianism and threats to democracy around the world. Her latest book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present, examines how illiberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power, and how resistance to them has unfolded over a century. Thank you so much, Ruth, for joining us.
1: Sure, it's a pleasure.
0: So let's start with your book, What are the sorts of ties that you see between the authoritarianism of the mid 20th century and the rising illiberalism of today?
1: So I wrote this book because I felt it was time to look back over a century of authoritarianism. Now, I'm a historian of fascism, so the book is primarily right-wing authoritarianism. I wanted to look at what happened. You know, you have the fascist regimes and then they crumble and goes on to the right-wing military coups and up to right-wing leaders like Bolsonaro and Trump today. And what you see when you do a broad look like that is you see continuities, you see disruptions. So, for example, I identify these tools of rule. This is the authoritarian playbook that remain constant throughout a century, the myth of national greatness, propaganda, corruption, violence, and machismo. And within that, you have some things that very interestingly hardly change at all, like the rules of personality cults. For example, the leader has to be the everyman, the man of the people, but he's also the superman, the man who often is said to rule by divine will, from Mussolini up to Trump. This is a constant kind of all over the world. And yet the information technologies and the media they use to diffuse those cults has obviously changed from newsreels to Twitter. But another continuity is every really smart authoritarian has a direct line of communications with the people. So again, Mussolini had newsreels, Hitler had radio, and today people have Twitter. But things have also obviously changed a lot. And so one of the main things is that, you know, in the old 20th century, you would shut down elections And today, elections cannot be considered the primary metric of authoritarianism because you have electoral autocracies where you hold elections, but you manipulate them. You weight the system through authoritarian capture of the judiciary and other institutions so that the results are weighted to come out the way you need them. Or you game the system like Putin does, sending, you know, serious contenders would be rivals like Navalny to prison. So today, really, accountability is, I think, the concept and transparency and accountability rather than elections that allows us to evaluate, you know, what separates democracy from authoritarianism. So that's one example of what has definitely
0: changed. That's a really interesting tension, and it's one that I've struggled with, this tension between, we would say, well, one, obviously, there's the challenges within kind of democratic practices themselves, right? So you point out possibilities around cheating in elections and, you know, things like that, weighting the system. So that's sort of one category of problem. The other category of problem, though, is sort of the tension that could exist between liberalism and democracy itself. Right. I mean, I run the Renew Democracy Initiative, but if we were being really honest, we should probably have named it the Renew Liberal Democracy Initiative. You know, and of course, liberal in this context has nothing to do with the left, but rather with classical liberalism in mind. It's a support for pluralism, free speech, open society, and so forth. And in some cases, it actually limits the world word democracy, right? Since 51% of the population in a liberal democracy can't just vote to take away fundamental rights from 49%. But, you know, at the same time, kind of as you hinted at, you can have majorities who will vote against liberalism, right? Whether it's on the right in the form of Trump, Orban in Hungary, Bolsonaro in Brazil, or on the left, in the form of Chavez in Venezuela, Correa in Ecuador, or Obrador in Mexico. And in these cases, people have often bought whatever the demagogue is selling. You know, even in Germany, with the Weimar Republic, you had Hitler winning a bit over 30%, but in the same election, the communists won just over 20%. So essentially, the majority of the people voted against Liberal democracy. And so I guess, how do you square this idea of people leveraging freedom to essentially vote against free and open societies?
1: Yeah, that's a central dilemma. And it relates to also issues of free speech, right? And all kinds of freedom. So there isn't really a perfect solution to that. I mean, the solution is what real authoritarians do, where you don't have anybody except the leader and his party deciding what goes on. But the whole concept of democracy has always been fraught. And so it's very interesting to me, this formulation that Orban uses, which is a liberal democracy. And of course, there's not much democratic about that. But today's demagogues, you know, like to keep the word democracy in there so that they can say that they're not dictators. So, And Erdogan in Turkey does the same thing. He says, there's democracy here, we have the ballot box. And so that relates back to the point about maintaining elections. So you can say that you're respecting the free will of the people. Whereas what you've actually done is, you know, change the system, not even behind the scenes, so that the act of voting and the act of speaking doesn't have the same weight. And in the case of Orban, with illiberal democracy, he's very clear that he thinks that, in fact, since Mussolini, every authoritarian has kind of said, well, you know, democracy is tyranny. Democracy is the tyranny of the majority. And so illiberal democracy is this kind of perfect formulation. But it also allows him to keep his EU funds coming. So it's somewhat of a veneer today.
0: And do you see then that e-liberal democracy as kind of a final stop for someone like Orban or more of a way station on its way to just straight up autocracy without even the veneer of a democratic system?
1: Yeah. Orban is very clear. He doesn't respect democracy. He's not interested in democracy in the liberal mode. And he's been slowly perfecting this autocratic capture process. So that's why I I think it's just a formulation that sounds good and preserves this fiction of the will of the people. But to take your point, for example, he was just reelected with a majority, and that was partially the opposition made some Uh, mistakes we could discuss. But he played this nationalist card and very skillfully about, you know, the position on the war. And so he was elected with a majority. And so the majority is voting for somebody who has taken a lot of rights away. What do we do with that?
0: Let's actually look at that case with respect to Orban's victory recently. I mean, his victory was pretty overwhelming, right? And I think it's clear that he did have his finger on the scales somewhat. But to your point, it appears that the resistance, despite having managed to unite around a single candidate, which I remember was a big win, right? That finally they were not divided. They had a single standard bearer, but they appear to have made significant errors. And so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I'm always looking at these things for, you know, what are the lessons for democracy protection, right? So, it was amazing that six parties came together in a coalition. And it was very interesting that one of those parties was the far-right party, Jobbik, which had been Orban's ally for many years and was trying to be, for its own reasons, go into this opposition coalition. And it was also interesting that they picked a Christian conservative, Peter Markizé, as the you know, opponent of Orban. And yet I believe that this was an error and the voting results showed this because you know, instead of being a true progressive alternative to an autocrat who's a right-wing nationalist, an intolerant, illiberal nationalist, the coalition with these choices kind of shifted everything to the right, hoping to capture Orban's votes. Instead, what happened is that the Jobbik voters pretty overwhelmingly, I think two-thirds of them defected. (laughs) They just couldn't bring themselves to vote for a coalition that included true conservatives. And they voted not only for Orban's party, but a lot of them voted for an even more right-wing party, a far-right party, which is kind of neo-fascist. So the lesson there was that In shifting everything toward the right, it was like a pale imitation of the real thing. And voters said, well, okay, we're going to go for the real thing, Orban. So I think to oppose an autocrat, you have to represent a true alternative.
0: So that's really interesting. There's kind of the reverse example somewhat in France, where you have Macron, the sort of consummate centrist, the president in France, competing against, in the first round at least, extremists to both right and left, where you've got on the right Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, both far-right nationalists. And then on the left, you have Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who for all intents and purposes is basically a communist and actually has aligned himself since with the official Communist Party candidate. In this election, Macron found himself shifting to the right somewhat, Mm -hmm. in order to, I think, capture the voters of the center-right party, which had put up a kind of uninspiring candidate in Pekres. You know, I wonder, how would you compare that election, where obviously the election itself was perfectly legitimate, nobody had their fingers on the scale, but clearly Macron was successful in kind of having shifted himself somewhat to the right, while having held off the sort of extremes in the form of both the far-right and the far-left.
1: Well, it, it's very hard to compare France and Hungary because there isn't an equivalent of Mélenchon. And the other thing is France is an open society because there isn't an Orban in power. And I wanted to mention that, you know, Peter Marquise, the, the opposition candidate to Orban, had not been invited to appear on national TV since 2019. Mm-hmm. The op- It's very important. We talked about the mistake of the opposition and that was part of it. But to go back to the gaming of the system, Orban has domesticated the media in an almost total way now. And so even in 2018 elections, the opposition was unable to get its message to voters, especially outside of big cities. So this is why that election was not a free and fair election. In many ways and this is the insidiousness of today's autocrats where they have these other ways of acting so that the system is slowly domesticated and gamed in their favor. So France is a very very different situation and the presence of Mélenchon allowed Macron to do this shift to the right and still win. But, you know, two things here. Macron had already had this kind of imperial presidency. He had already done things that pissed off the left, the way he you know, treated some of the protests and the yellow vests. So he already had this kind of profile that was not totally a liberal democracy profile in some respects. The other thing is that many people didn't like him, but they voted for him nonetheless because Le Pen... Is a huge threat, a kind of existential threat, certainly for non Christians, the huge non Christian population, the Muslim population. And so this was a very special set of circumstances that allowed him to win. It's not because he was so very popular, but because he's a bulwark against the success of a far right authoritarian. And The lesson of history is that once these people get in, it can be difficult to get them out.
0: I think that makes sense. So let's take a step back. Returning back to your book, I'm sure you'll remember the New York Times review of your book, which was somewhat critical. And one of the things it noted was that the book appeared to lack kind of an overarching framework. So for instance, including Berlusconi alongside Gaddafi. And, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this and also see if you might be able to offer something along the lines of a taxonomy of authoritarianism, right? Like, how would you classify different types of authoritarians from, you know, the wannabes to, well, the Gaddafis?
1: Yes, thank you for giving me the opportunity to respond. And I would say, first of all, um, the author of the review, Francis Fukuyama, was mentioned in an unflattering light in the book because he had been a kind of enabler of Gaddafi during a period when Gaddafi was trying to stay in power and and had this kind of surface liberalization on certain issues. He was going to partner with the West And so Fukuyama should not have been, in theory, practices of uh, reviewing. They shouldn't have been reviewing it. But he did. And the idea there's no taxonomy is I'm not a political scientist. I'm a historian. And there is a very clear, actually, a conceptual framework in the book. And that is the framework of personalist rule and my choice of leader. So I wasn't clear enough in my introduction about why I excluded communists. I had a few lines. I could have gone into it more, but it was my first trade book, and I didn't want to belabor the methodology as I would have done in another kind of book. Let's put it that way. And so I was interested in people who either wrecked a democracy or had a big change to the system. And so I didn't want to include people who inherited power in an already closed system. And that's why Xi Jinping and other people like that are not in there. But the personalist rule, it's a very important concept, and Putin is a personalist ruler, and for example, Pinochet, the reason of all the juntas in the Cold War, I picked Pinochet, is that uh, you know a lot of the juntas, like the Brazilian military dictatorship, did not have one dominating personality. It was a true collective experience, whereas Pinochet came in with a junta and then within one year he became the dominant force. And personalist rule has certain pathologies of autocracy that they recur no matter where it happens. And they even recurred in a minor way in Berlusconi's Italy and Trump's America, where you had these kind of authoritarian presidencies. And one of the things that happens, for example, that leads to very bad governance is these kinds of people, the same qualities that lead them to be able to maneuver themselves into power, meaning a lack of a moral code, narcissism, you know, a kind of willingness to do anything that's necessary to get to power, they also start to hinder them. And so they create what political scientists call inner sanctums. And... Sometimes, as in Putin's case, these are cronies from the old days of St. Petersburg. Sometimes they're family members, the Orban and Erdogan and Trump. They create these buffer zones. And over time, if they're there long enough, and this is relevant to the big miscalculation of the war on Ukraine, <laughs> the leader becomes isolated. Uh, he does not get good intel. He does not want good intel. He believes his own propaganda. He becomes more and more paranoid. And so he's surrounded by flatterers and sycophants. And so this is very interesting because this happens wherever you have a personalist ruler. And there's a lot of political science literature on personalist rule. And the reviewer of my book was doubtless aware of it, but it wasn't what he was looking for. And so sometimes reviewers want you to be writing another book (laughs) than you are. And that happens. And then the other thing is, He's since revised his opinion, but he didn't think that Trump should be in the book. Now he has changed his ideas after January 6th somewhat. Mm. So my work is always very early. In all my scholarly work, I've been very early to say certain things, and some people are not ready to hear them. And so I start the book. The prologue is about Putin and Berlusconi and their special relationship and the way that Berlusconi became Putin's, as you know, Putin has had a series of kind of Western enablers, Mm -hmm. and who are his mouthpieces for foreign policy, his objectives. You know, this is the Russian information warfare playbook, and it's for the masses that you see the world the way that benefits the Kremlin. So he had Gerhard Schroeder, but Berlusconi was his deepest and most intimate friendship who also had that political role. So I start the book with the two of them. And so to say that also Berlusconi might shouldn't have been in the book is just uh, short-sighted. <laughs> and because he was also the precursor of Trump, and there's big differences mm. in those two relationships, but the function they served for Putin was the same.
0: So this relationship between dictators and the free world is something that I've always found really interesting. Because on the one hand, dictators like Putin, Xi Jinping, and so forth, rail against the evils of the free world, right? The decadence of the West, while simultaneously benefiting from it, right? Putin's cronies prior to February 24th's invasion of Ukraine had hidden hundreds of billions of dollars in various corners of the West, right? From super yachts to villas to, you know, whatever kind of decadent thing you could think of. And meanwhile, you have Western leaders sometimes, more than sometimes, frequently, kind of holding water for these dictatorial regimes, ranging from, you know, kind of authoritarians, like or wannabe authoritarians, rather, like Berlusconi, who had this kind of personal relationship with Putin, and of course, obviously, Trump's relationship with Putin. But also, you've kind of had a number of other Western European leaders trying to, whether placate him or sometimes outwardly support his aims, you know, and of course as you noted, I'm thinking Gerard Schroeder in Germany, but I'm also thinking of Macron and his many conversations with Putin, and I'm also thinking of Richard Haas, the head of CFRs at Council on Foreign Relations who recently wrote a piece about how we should avoid humiliating Putin, and this kind of brings to mind a few things for me, you know, the first is the kind of incredibly detrimental impact of corrupt money on the West, right? Where you have Putin essentially controlling more money than any human in history and therefore being able to use that money as a scalpel to corrupt Western institutions. You have oligarchs who use their money for charitable contributions sometimes in order to gain a veneer of legitimacy. And, you know, and I have to be blunt, I'm thinking of Roman Abramovich who right around the time of the invasion offered to give millions of dollars to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel, in order to try to get the leaders of Yad Vashem to kind of defend him and try to keep him off the sanctions list. And so I wonder how you would react to all of that. Are dictators successful in corrupting Western institutions? And to what extent are they successful? And how can we prevent them from doing so?
1: Yeah, this is actually a bit of a sub-theme of my book, and I tackle it in many ways. I have a whole running thing about Western PR firms who propped up these dictators. And I, I give the example of uh, Francisco Franco in Spain, who successfully, with an army of Western PR firms and also travel professionals and film industry rehabilitated himself from the taint of fascism to a cold war client and attracted all kinds of Western money. And again, many, many film companies that, you know, came to film there. The movie Patton, ironically, uh, (laughs) about the war against the Axis was filmed in France and it became a huge travel destination. And so it had a veneer of legitimacy. So there's PR firms. And then of course, the war on Ukraine has showed, you know, because of the sanctions and economic warfare has showed people, has, un, has revealed to many people who didn't know about this, the extent of what I call faux populism, you know, how all of these leaders rail against globalists. And then they're the biggest globalists of all because they keep their money out of their countries. And they all do this. Orban's the same and Erdogan, they're all hyper-nationalists who are actually completely enabled by international bankers and lobbyists and the original ones. And I've tried to show the through lines throughout right-wing authoritarian history. So, for example, Roger Stone and uh, Paul Menfort, they worked for Marcos, they worked for Mobutu, and then they they worked in Russia Mm -hmm. and now in Trump. So there are these very long standing patterns of western enablers who allow these dictators and then there's the media keeps you know the Putin playing the piano and recently there was Putin as family man this is all a bunch of bullshit excuse my language <laughs> and it's extremely dangerous and it's very difficult to get people to give up their money and do the right thing but The revelations about how kleptocracy works, because I believe every time that we talk about Putin, we have to talk about kleptocracy, because, for example, the performance of the Russian military, it was like the second week of the war, I was on MSNBC, and I'm like, okay, this military is going to underperform because it's ravaged by corruption, it's ravaged by kleptocracy. And how does that kleptocracy keep going? It's because he, you know, they are allowed to have their stuff, their money abroad. So this is a huge, huge problem. The other aspect of it I'd mention is our dependence on fossil fuels, because it's not just buying people off. It's the money comes from, you know, the control, just like with Gaddafi, control of oil. So if we wean ourselves off of fossil fuels, that's one way to tackle part of the problem.
0: Yeah. And I just want to put an even finer point on it, because it's not just sort of people of ill repute, like Manafort, for instance, you know, who are doing this. But also, I mean, Tony Blair, someone Mm -hmm. whom I don't think any of us would say is a man of ill repute, advised the former Kazakhstan dictator, you know, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, after the 2011 uprising. So you also have kind of these very successful you know ostensibly liberal Western leaders who kind of allow themselves to be I mean I don't want to say bought but maybe rented by dictators
1: yeah and it's the same Tony Blair was also uh, busy visiting Gaddafi during the same time that Gaddafi as I mentioned before was reaching out to Westerners and making deals supposedly animated by you know for like, mass laptop program so that all Libyan children would have laptops and he partnered with somebody from MIT. I mean, this is a whole, but the bad faith of these people is evident, but there's this desire for their money. And so people fall for their professions of wanting to do good or that they're changing. And in the case of Putin, I have a very different view. I believe that he has to be humiliated as much as possible
0: Amen. because,
1: oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you have to shame these people. Um, And because, as I write in Strongman, the real thing that drives people like Putin is fear. They are afraid of the people they govern. That's why they use repression. They are afraid of being exposed for what they are. And that's why they send so many people to jail and use manipulation of belief. And they're afraid of their own shadows. That's why they all end up in bunkers and you know, their houses in Siberia, and that's why they're paranoid, that's why they use the inner circle, the inner sanctums, all of this repeats over a century. And in fact, knowing how autocrats think, I've actually, I was able to predict so many things that Putin did and how this war would go very, very early. And I'm not a Russian specialist, but I am an autocrat specialist and Putin's in my book. And so it was very evident to me that certain authoritarian dynamics would go a certain way. I hate to be right. <laughs> same with the humiliation. I see these all these pieces that are wanting us to
0: tiptoe around him as appeasement. I obviously could not agree more. Before we kind of get to that piece there, I, I want to follow up a little bit on the corruption angle here. You know, so I think we've outlined the problem of how corrupt dictatorial money is a danger to the West. You know, and I don't want to pretend that there is some silver bullet solution here. But I wonder if there are some kind of mitigating strategies that you have found over the course of your work.
1: You know, some of the things are being done now with sanctions, and you have to hit them where it hurts. And so it took the war to kind of get I mean, we already had things which are moving in the right direction in the U.S. This was during the Trump administration, this bipartisan anti-kleptocratic congressional caucus appeared. And so that was very good. And it's just been because of the things we mentioned before, the desire to benefit from dirty money, it's been very difficult to make progress in the war. It was kind of this wake up. And so you have things that people thought were unimaginable. Certainly Putin thought they were unimaginable that everybody would unite and sanction. But the reason I mentioned all the PR and lobbying firms is it's a broader problem of how do you incentivize people to not work for dictators. And it's the worst kind of hypocrisy because they're all sitting in London and they're sitting in Washington DC enjoying all of the benefits of freedom. They haven't, I mean, I was going to say they have no clue what it's like to live under repression. They kind of do because they go to those capitals, but they don't care. and so. It's very difficult, but and it's been going on for as long as authoritarian has been in existence. You know, Mussolini had a syndicated column in Hearst newspapers for seven years, reached 1,000 newspapers around the U.S. from 1927 to 1935, and he also was a darling of J.P. Morgan Bank, which was giving mm. him lots of money and propping him up. So you have PR, you have media, and you have banking from the very beginning.
0: <laughs> so it's a difficult problem to defeat. Yeah, and prior to the war, I mean, you had entire cottage industries in real estate, in luxury goods and so forth, catering to Russian oligarchs.
1: Yeah, to write Strong Men, I immersed myself for years in the heads of these guys. And so I'm the last one to ever be surprised by what they do. But as a first generation American, my parents are immigrants. I will never get over the fact that Trump was in the White House because he is a criminal in so many ways, from sexual assault to money laundering. And I have a newsletter, Lucid, on threats to democracy. And I interviewed uh, Casey Michelle, who wrote this book, American Kleptocracy. And he said that Trump was the first person in the White House who came from the uh, kleptocratic service industry, Hmm. which is a perfect way to put it right? Because through money laundering of luxury real estate and licensing his name, and that's where a lot of his Russian money came from. So this is a huge problem. And the more light is shown on, I think only in the last year, people maybe became aware that Delaware, North Dakota are global centers of kleptocracy. Who would have thought, right?
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I I think ultimately having some form of transparency laws, additional transparency laws around very large sums of money, very large purchases could be at least one approach in trying to combat this. You know, I know that the sort of Byzantine process that many of the world's sort of wealthy kleptocrats use to hide the origins of their money you know it's something that we've had trouble with and even now we still have trouble with it where you know i think a number of russian oligarchs have been able to somewhat successfully hide their money through a number of different financial vehicles that western authorities have struggled to unravel
1: and there is progress so there was also in 2019 the, the maloney law there you can't be anonymous for shell corporations anymore So going forward in the United States, you can't do that, but it kind of grandfathers in all the older ones. So the pace of change on this issue is just slow, whereas, you know, authoritarians and their enablers are increasing year by year.
0: So I want to look at a little bit of a different question now. In your book, you sort of are very open about, you know, you are a historian of fascism, and therefore you focus on kind of the extreme right wing form of authoritarianism in the form of fascism and wannabe fascism and, and things of that nature. But my co-host, who's currently galventing about Europe, Gary Kasparov, you know, has an argument and, and I'm not sure if you would agree with it or not, but he frequently will make the point that all dictatorships are terrible, obviously, and tyranny is something that must be fought tooth and nail. But that sometimes in liberal societies, we kind of discount the tyranny of far left-wing dictatorships, right? So, you know, I'm thinking about the kind of support that Chavez sometimes enjoyed in the U.S. and, you know, Fidel Castro, uh, Che Guevara, and so forth, you know, but he's actually made an even kind of broader point, which is not only are they, you know, sometimes ignored in our society, but that also their form of tyranny can in the long term actually be more pernicious because it's not merely authoritarianism. The goal is not merely to maintain power, but it's totalitarian. The goal is to actually control what people can think, what people can say, not just in public, but also in private. How would you respond to that?
1: Yeah, there and that particular thing where that was the goal of right-wing dictatorships too. People who, you know, certainly the the most energetic one of Nazism, it didn't last very long, but they wanted to completely colonize. I I like that they wanted to colonize society and colonize minds and behaviors. That's why the Hitler salute, it forced you to change the way you used your body in public. So on that note, that's not only a communist thing, but I agree. I agree that, I mean, communism created more millions of victims over its life, for sure. And actually, that's why I have Gaddafi in my book. He's the one person who is certainly a, he was a revolutionary leftist. And he's mm-hmm. in my book because he is in Libya, which Mussolini colonized, and he also was incredibly close to Berlusconi. So I wanted to have him in the book for that reason. But he also represents that in the end, most authoritarian states behave the same way. And I also have in the book, this isn't the focus of the book, but these kind of relationships that right-wing and left-wing dictators can have, such as Mobutu, who's in my book, with Ceausescu. Mobutu was a Cold War right-wing despot propped up by the U.S., but he also adored Mao, and he was friends with Ceausescu, like very, very good friends with him. And so ultimately, the goals of authoritarianism, which are you know to strip your rights away, to colonize society, to steal, to be kleptocratic, many of those goals are the same. And the other thing I, I wanted to mention about the personality of autocrats is not only they have no moral code, they're completely transactional. And so Trump, you know, yes, he depended on Putin, but he also asked the Chinese to help him get elected, right? And he had all these deals going with China, and he and Ivanka have trademarks from China because it's all about transactionalism, even though at the same time he spearheaded to take attention away from Russia, he spearheaded this whole anti-Chinese thing. And that continues on in the GOP where, you know, anti-communism is now like a very big thing. Which is fine, because communism was evil, but Ron DeSantis just had this you know new victim of communist holiday, and that's fine, but are we going to see him having a victims of fascism holiday? I mean, he's got people you know making Hitler salutes in his state, and he doesn't do anything about it, and that's the problem because the GOP is a far-right authoritarian party now, so we're going to see more of this anti-communism. but I do agree with Gary, and there's that theory where it's less about. at at the level of regime actions, it's less about left and right versus freedom versus autocracy.
0: Yeah, I think the fact that we've got this sort of asymmetric polarization is not something that's going to be news to most folks. So, you know, you point out that, that, you know, folks like DeSantis and such will focus a lot more on the victims of communism and they won't really talk as much about victims of fascism and they won't even call out the extremists on their own side, which I think is true. Mm -hmm. But I've also noticed, so, you know, my friend Enes Cantor Freedom, the NBA mm-hmm. player, he has been very vocal about calling out Chinese dictatorships, the Uyghur crisis, and so forth. And, you know, he's not a very political guy, and certainly he's not on the right, but he was kind of embraced by the right because of his anti-Chinese Communist Party rhetoric whereby this, in my view, probably should have been a perfectly bipartisan issue. I think we can all agree that the Uyghur genocide is utterly horrific. But I don't really see as strong a response on the left against the kind of evils being perpetrated in regimes like China. I wonder, are you seeing the same thing? If so, why do you think that is?
1: Well, in the American context, the Trump administration, which was a highly successful propaganda machine, really steered people into anti-Chinese sentiment to take the heat off of Russia and Putin. I mm-hmm. see that. But I think that if we go back to the enabling issue. I've interviewed, you know, Chinese dissidents and Chinese artists who were in exile from my newsletter. It's, they're a huge menace. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just, it's awful. But people are so dependent. Look at the pain that all the extrication from Russia that's gone on. Up to 1,000 American companies have withdrawn from Russia. Sometimes it's a little bit of a cosmetic withdrawal, you know, where they leave, but then they hand it over to Russian concerns to manage it. But that's been a big, big thing, and it took the war to get that to happen. Now, what would it take to get people to disengage more with China on moral grounds? Would that ever happen? Some years ago, I tweeted about, I didn't think that we should be engaging from the field of education, my own institution, NYU, as a campus in Shanghai, that we shouldn't be engaging. And I took a lot of heat for that, but I think that there's too much enabling that goes on with that. It's just China, Chinese commerce and Chinese products, it's very difficult to disengage, and how do you get away from that? And from that leads... The Chinese have been brilliant about this, just as they're very brilliant about what they're doing in Africa now, in the Congo, and with funding infrastructures, and they can default at any moment and kind of have a huge amount of economic control in these countries. So it's very difficult with China, more difficult than in Russia, to disengage.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny, we used to say in the 90s and early 2000s that through kind of open markets and so forth, we would be exporting democracy, right? And of course, what we have found, especially I think in the last few years, is that far from exporting democracy, what has actually happened is that we've been importing authoritarianism,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, where you have leaders carrying water for Putin, you have organizations like the NBA being too afraid to allow any kind of criticism of China for fear of losing money, You know, and so I think we've outlined a lot of these sorts of different problems. I think we've outlined a couple of, you know, potential solutions or at the very least mitigating measures. But before we close out, I want to see if we can kind of offer any additional thoughts on what we can actually do to try to give freedom and democracy a further edge over authoritarianism, you know, try to further address issues of corruption, of the rise of authoritarianism. And I wonder what lessons you might be able to offer from, you know, resisting wannabe authoritarians in open and free societies to resisting encroachment by authoritarian governments on the free world.
1: So for the latter, it was very important that I have a chapter on resistance in the book. That goes over a century and shows how tactics, just as I show how propaganda has changed its use by authoritarians, I look at how resistance tactics have changed over a century, including the mass protests against Putin and all over the world, all the case studies. Because the book has certain, it focuses on certain people as case studies in that sense. Well, one is that don't fall for their myths. It's very discouraging that the same myths are used over and over. And this is, gets into the machismo chapter that only the strongman, you know, the strongman is somebody who creates a crisis and then can come in and say he has all the solutions. And their personality cults interact with corruption because they are infallible, they are invincible, but they're also the man who glamorizes lawlessness. They get away with it. That's the essence of authoritarianism is getting away with it, getting away with crimes. And that's why accountability is so important. And yet over and over again, most recently with the return of the Marcos family to the Philippines. My latest essay in my newsletter, Lucid, was about this, and that they successfully, you know, his propaganda machine, depicted martial law as an age of calm and stability for business. And these are the same exact tropes and images and myths that sustained Mussolini. Hitler had the Autobahn and the infrastructure projects of Erdogan, And that nobody's pointing out that these are mountains of foreign debt that are, and repression and Mussolini, you know, nobody knew if the trains were running on time. There were no strikes, there were no, you know, non-doctored statistics. So that's one thing. And the press, the world press is, there are incredible investigative journalists who do like the Panama Papers and all kinds of things. But there's far too much veneration of these figures and whitewashing of these figures. And so we keep falling for their myths. That's one problem. The other is to recognize the power of nonviolent resistance to actually change things at the right time. And so Erica Chenoweth and many others have incredible studies about the effectiveness of mass protest. And in fact, in our country, the Black Lives Matter movement directly affected the voter mobilization that got rid of Trump. And to end on a You know, happy note, we did, in the United States, we're in a bad shape now, but in 2020, we did something very unusual. We interrupted a process of autocratic capture. We had somebody who was highly, one of the most dangerous individuals in the world. I really see him in that way. And we voted him out. And of course, he, you know, cooked up this myth that he didn't lose, which allowed his supporters to believe he was still their hero. And uh, now it's been accepted by the GOP. And we had January 6th. But we got rid of this guy. And that's something that often doesn't
0: happen. You know, when you said that authoritarians tend to glamorize lawlessness, in my mind, all I was thinking of was like a kind of a tagline of like dictators, the Kardashians of corruption, making it look good. But, you know, the last note that I wanted to end on here is nevertheless kind of drawing a distinction, you know, which I think is important in terms of the appropriate tactics depending upon the government, right? So, you know, the U.S., for all of our faults, is nevertheless a free society, right? It's still, you know, one of the top democracies in the world, you know, even though it's been dinged in the last few years as recognized by Freedom House's index. But that kind of informs what tactics resistance can and should use in Mm -hmm. order to, you know, resist encroaching authoritarianism. Where in a country like Hungary, you know, which is much further gone with respect to democracy, right? I mean, there's still some vestiges of democracy left, but it's definitely much further along the path. You know, the tactics used by resistance presumably could and maybe should be a lot more aggressive. Versus in the U.S., there's a threat of overreach, right? A threat of overreaction where people who believe what they're doing is resisting rule can go overboard and actually cause a backlash, right? So I'm thinking most recently of the protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices, right? So, you know, I could see how in a completely unfree society where the judiciary is, not a truly independent institution, you know, where things like that might make more sense. But here, what I'm kind of seeing is, you know, people engaging in actions that could intimidate, you know, threaten individual justices and their families in their homes, making life very uncomfortable. Um, Well, not just uncomfortable, but, you know, I mean, at least one or two of them, I think, have had to actually go into hiding for a period of time. And so I wonder if there's an element here of resistance in free societies that could actually go overboard and lead to a backlash, which actually leads to damage to the cause, which actually hurts the cause that those who are protesting hope to support.
1: There's that worry. That's why I always stress nonviolent mass protest because that's the one that has worked and doesn't alienate people. I think the people who are outside those homes, they likely know that how many people like Christine Blasey Ford had to seek refuge and go to another state with her family when she spoke out against Brett Kavanaugh and there's countless people, anybody who's active as a democrat in media gets death threats all the time. I had a stalker in two thousand seventeen and I had to move my office at NYU. And so it's not that two wrongs make a right, but I think we need to be much more frank in the media about the state of threat. And that finally there's articles about threats on election workers, but the state of threat in this society is about people who speak out against the right. It's a huge problem today. So I think that part of democracy is it's messy. There's going to be people who want to do certain kind of actions that indeed could be counterproductive. But the alternative is you arrive at Putin's Russia where people are protesting the war with a sign that has nothing on it. <laughs> and then just the act of standing there with a sign means that they're arrested, which is just incredibly
0: totalitarian. Yeah, and you know, thankfully I don't think we're anywhere near there, but definitely, I mean, I think that's something we should keep in mind as the ultimate threat to freedom.
1: Yeah, and protesting, I track this very carefully. In fact, there's a really good website called Protest Tracker. Protesting in the United States has under the Trump administration and accelerating now has become very dangerous in many states. There are numerous states that have passed laws where someone could mow you down in a car and they wouldn't have criminal liability anymore. So it's also become much more difficult to just to have the right of assembly. And this is going on at the state level, like a lot of the other things that are authoritarian right now. So they're moving to do that. And you know, these revelations like, oh, you and I wouldn't have been surprised where, you know, we heard recently from Mark Esper that Trump's like, well, just shoot them in the legs. Hmm. That's what you do to protesters because he is an authoritarian and you don't think twice about shooting protesters in the legs. Of course you do that. So these things are wake up calls for many Americans who think, well, oh, it can't happen here. And it certainly can happen
0: here. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, you know, it's kind of incumbent upon all of us to be very clear eyed about the threats facing our democracy, wherever they might arise from, and to be careful and thoughtful in how we resist and how we react so that what we're doing, on the one hand, doesn't become counterproductive, and on the other hand, doesn't make us that which we would ourselves despise. With all of that, Ruth, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. And I want to note that we are going on a two-week hiatus as I joined Gary in Europe. But I would encourage you to listen and subscribe to my colleague, Pastor Ivan Moarírez' Frontlines of Freedom podcast, which is going to be launching next week. So with that, thank you again, Ruth, and thank you all for listening to this episode of Winter is Here, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative and Substack. I'm your host, Yuri Lepstein. At RDI, we are committed to pulling American democracy back from the brink and restoring its place as a global beacon for freedom. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe for free in your podcast player at renewdemocracy.substack.com and share the episode with a friend or become an RDI subscriber at rdi.org. Thank you.